today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. What I find remarkable about his emotion here and his passion and compassion is that he's brokenhearted over a people that he doesn't even really know, over a city that he's never visited, over a land that he's never seen. This is remarkable. This is something God has put in his heart. He doesn't know these people. These are exiles that have returned. He's never seen Jerusalem or visited there. He'd never been to the land of Israel. And yet he has this burning desire, this compassion to reach out and help these people. God has put it there. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Nehemiah. Is there a burden on your heart for a certain group of people? It could be for an entire population on the other side of the world, or it could just be for the kids that live in your neighborhood. Whoever it is, it's possible that God is the one who put that compassion in your heart to reach out to them. In today's message, Pastor Gary introduces Nehemiah as a notable figure who becomes brokenhearted over the sorry state of a people he's never met before. It's really God at work in him. When God wants to work through you, it's time to step out. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Nehemiah chapter 1 for part 1 of today's message titled, Helping the Troubled and Disgraced. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Let me jump right in with a bit of an introduction. Since we are starting a new book together, I always like to give a few bullet points and a little background about the book and get some context for you. Just by way of background on the book, Nehemiah the book, then we'll talk briefly about Nehemiah the man. Again, this is a continuation of the book of Ezra. They were both originally one scroll, Ezra and Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah was uh, probably compiled from Nehemiah's memoirs, but scholars believe likely written by Ezra. Ezra was a scribe after all, so it makes sense that he might have actually recorded these things, but taken directly from Nehemiah's memoirs because Nehemiah is written in large part in the first person. This is his story, and so he's giving it or dictating it through Ezra more than likely. The story begins 445 BC. That's the context of Nehemiah. We know the year because he says this is a story that happens in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes of Persia, and we know historically when that was, so that puts it 445 B.C. It is chronologically the last book of the Old Testament. What do I mean? This section is Genesis to Nehemiah, what we're studying today, Genesis to Nehemiah. In this section is the sum total of Old Testament Jewish history. All the other books that follow Nehemiah get inserted in terms of the story or the chronology, get inserted somewhere between Genesis and Nehemiah. The only exception is Malachi. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, was a prophet who ministered around 400 B.C. Some believe that Malachi actually ministered during the time period of Nehemiah, 
or just slightly thereafter. So he might be the only exception. Otherwise, every other book in the Old Testament going forward as we study through the Bible fits somewhere between Genesis and Nehemiah. So we'll talk about that as we make our way through the Bible in months and years to come. But that's the important factor about the book of Nehemiah. And then finally about the book of Nehemiah, this is a great tidbit, but I'm not going to go into detail on it. Nehemiah is the beginning of the countdown for the first coming of Christ into Jerusalem when he comes to die for the sins of the world. Daniel prophesies in his book about 100 years before Nehemiah, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 25, he says, From the time that the issue, the decree is given for the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the coming of the anointed one. Okay, the anointed one, that's just Hebrew, Mashiach. The Greek transliteration is Christos, Christ, Messiah. From the issuing of the decree for the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the coming of the anointed one, there will be 69 sevens. 69 times seven-year blocks. So when you do the math, 483 years, 69 times 7, 483 years from the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the anointed one, until Messiah. And if you go by the Babylonian calendar of 360 days versus ours, 365, you come to exactly 32 AD when Jesus rides on a donkey in the streets of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday facing the cross for his crucifixion. So Daniel prophesies that timeline, and Nehemiah is the story when the issuing of the decree is given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So that's a countdown. That's a prophetic countdown. When we get to Daniel, that'll be something we go over in more detail. And now quickly about Nehemiah, the man himself. His name in Hebrew is Nehemiah. Nehemiah means God comforts. He's a Jew living among the Jewish exiles in Persia, but Persia was formerly Babylonia, remember. And he gets permission by the king, King Artaxerxes, to go to Jerusalem and to lead the rebuilding of the city, in particular the city walls. He is appointed governor of Judea for the 12 years that he is in Jerusalem. And he is a man who prays often. The Bible records in 13 chapters 12 times that Nehemiah prays. He's a praying man, some very short prayers and some longer. Chapter 1 is one of his longer prayers. And he serves in the palace of the Persian king Artaxerxes as his cupbearer. Okay, that's what the Bible says. He serves as a cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer was actually a position of great honor. It was a very prestigious rank in the, the royal court of the king. A lot of people, you know, think of cupbearers, generally speaking, as kind of expendable laboratory rats who were the ones who drank, who sipped, who sampled the king's wine before it was given to the king to make sure if there was any poison in it that the cupbearer would die and not the king. All right, that would sometimes happen out of necessity if there was a threat against the king's life where the cupbearer might have to sample it ahead of time. But don't think of it like that. A cupbearer was not like that. It was not some expendable laboratory rat. Here, you drink this first. If you die, then I'm good to go. It's not like that. A cupbearer was a high position of honor in the court of the king. He was a trusted confidant of the king who had direct access like nobody else. He was an advisor to the king. He was someone who assisted the king, helped the king, and was trusted in all matters. Okay? That's the reason why he often, the cupper wouldn't have to sample the king's wine often because he was so trusted that as long as it came from his hand, the king would drink it. 
So this is Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king. How he got promoted to such a prestigious position in the Persian palace is unknown. But here he is living in Persia, cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now remember, Nehemiah was born and raised in Persia. The Jewish exiles who have been allowed to return to Jerusalem were first deported by Nebuchadnezzar 150 years before Nehemiah was born, thereabouts. And the first group of exiles have already gone about 100 years before this story. So he has been born and raised in Persia. He knows nothing about Israel. He's never been there. He's never seen Jerusalem. And he has no idea how the exiles are doing living in Jerusalem since their return until he gets word from his brother and a few other men who have been to Judah and back to report to Nehemiah the condition of the people in Jerusalem. And when he hears this report, he is heartbroken. And that is the setting of the stage of chapter 1. So if you look at chapter 1 with me, Well, I'm going to read all of it. It's only 11 verses. Most of it is his prayer to God. But I want you to see his reaction to the news about the condition of the Jews living in Jerusalem. Here we go. Nehemiah 1 verse 1 says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. That's the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. While I was in the citadel of Susa. Okay, that's the palace of the Persian kings, about 200 miles east of Babylon. Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, this is his prayer, it's the first of 12 prayers in Nehemiah. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, he's referring to this man being King Artaxerxes. He's about to go into the presence of the king, and he's going to ask for a favor. He wants the permission to go to Jerusalem and lead the rebuilding of the walls of the city. And so he prays to God, give me favor with this man before I go in there. And then the chapter ends by him saying, I was cupbearer to the king. One of the things I like about Nehemiah as a man 
that I think you'll pick up on as we go more and more through the book of Nehemiah is he is a godly man who is both tender and tough. He's a very balanced guy in this regard. Godly man, very tender, also very tough. The first chapter of Nehemiah shows his tender side. He weeps. He weeps like a middle school girl in chapter 1, all right? I mean, he's just moved with compassion, and he weeps in chapter 1. But the last chapter of Nehemiah, he's beating people up. No, he is. In chapter 13, I'm not making this up. It's because people are not obeying the word of the Lord, and they're not heeding his instruction. So the Bible says, Nehemiah says, so I beat up some of the men, and I pulled out their hair. (laughs) And if you don't find that funny, it's because you're not a pastor, all right? I love this guy. He's tender and he's tough. All right? I get this guy. You know? Pastor Gary, will you pray for me? Yeah, sure. What do you need prayer for? I mean, you know, I got drunk again, ran off the side of the road, almost killed myself. Really? Isn't this like the third time you've asked me to pray for you this month about that very thing? Yeah, I know. I just need more prayer. Why don't you step over here just a minute? All right, just close your eyes. Go ahead. Close your eyes. Bow your head. Bow your head. Yeah, all right. What, you're a Packers fan too? All right, so there. So, like, I'm human too, you know. But anyway, but when you look here in chapter 1, we do see the tender side of Nehemiah. He's weeping here in chapter 1. Look again at verse 4. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. He, he like, even lose track of how many days went by. You know, for some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And what was he weeping about? He was weeping over the news he hears about the condition of the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem. Notice again the word that he gets from his brother and some of the men who had been there. Verse 3, they say to him, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, back in Israel, back in Jerusalem, are in great trouble and disgrace. Those are key words for our study today. Great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, to get a little context here, we need to understand what are they talking about and what has transpired up to this point. So just a quick review. When Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, besieged Jerusalem in 586 BC, he destroyed the city. He destroyed the temple. He left it just a pile of rubble took the Jews off, thousands of them, into captivity into Babylonia. The Babylonians were then succeeded by the Persians. When a Persian king, Darius, came on the throne, he said to the Jews, you guys have been done wrong, okay? You were taken captive and brought over here under Nebuchadnezzar, and now that we've replaced the Babylonians, Darius says to the Jews, any of you whose heart moves may go back to your homeland in Israel. There are two waves before Nehemiah of Jews who go back to Israel. The first wave is led by a guy whose name was Zerubbabel. He leads, the census tells us in the Bible, about 50,000 Jews go back to Jerusalem. The second wave is by Ezra. Ezra leads another group of about 1,800 men. When you do the math of women and children, probably three, four, five thousand 5,000 people go back in the second wave. The second wave led by Ezra occurs about 15 years before Nehemiah. The first wave was about 100 years before Nehemiah. So the first wave of people, they've been back in Israel for about 100 years. And when Darius gave this order that as many as want to go back to Israel are able to go back, Nehemiah and his family were among those who stayed in Persia. Nehemiah has never been to Israel, never seen Israel. 
only understands the condition of the people by way of the word he gets from his brother and the guys who visited him. So when the Jews returned to Israel, to Jerusalem specifically, they returned to nothing but a pile of rocks that Nebuchadnezzar had left in the wake of his victory over Jerusalem. So the first wave of people especially, they have to rebuild their lives from nothing, just rubble. They have to go back and reestablish everything. The Bible says in Ezra, if you remember, first thing that they rebuild is the altar of the Lord. Even before the temple, they rebuild the altar. They build the altar because they want to get serious and prioritize their worship of God and the sacrificial system to make atonement for their sins, which was the only way prior to the cross that sins could be atoned for. So they build the altar. Secondly, they build the temple. The temple is now finished. Okay, By the time we get here to Nehemiah, temple is completed. But apparently, however, the city of Jerusalem itself is still in a state of disrepair. Rocks and just rubble. Apparently, the people built the altar, built the temple, but then they never really rebuilt the city, and they never rebuilt the walls. They lived on the outskirts of town. They built homes on the outskirts of the city, and then they just seemed to be content to step over piles of rock and rubble to get to the temple. It didn't seem to concern them. And so what happens is when the word gets to Nehemiah about the condition of the city, Nehemiah realizes that the broken condition of the city is representative of the broken condition of their lives. Because in the prayer in chapter 1, he's confessing sin. He realizes the reason why the people have not rightly, properly rebuilt the city is because their lives are broken. And when your lives are broken, you don't repair other things that are broken around you. Nehemiah spends time confessing his sin and the sin of his fathers, not that he's responsible for the sin of his fathers, neither are we. Broadly speaking, I confess my sins, the sin of my nation. We just want to be right with you. You have promised through Moses that if we were unfaithful, we would be scattered. But if we return to you, you would gather the exiles from the farthest parts. And Nehemiah is basically saying, God, you've done that. You've gathered the exiles again. You've returned them to the land. But it breaks my heart that the wall is in a state of disrepair. And so this is why he's mourning and he's grieving here. He says, this isn't right. This isn't right. We're going to build a wall. We're going to build the wall around Jerusalem again. Now, he is motivated here, and he's brokenhearted for two reasons. One, patriotism for the land that he loves. And two, compassion for the people that he loves. But what I find remarkable about his emotion here and his passion and compassion is that he's brokenhearted over a people that he doesn't even really know, over a city that he's never visited, over a land that he's never seen. This is remarkable. This is something God has put in his heart. He doesn't know these people. These are exiles that have returned. He's never seen Jerusalem or visited there. He's never been to the land of Israel. And yet he has this burning desire, this compassion to reach out and help these people. God has put it there. By the way, it is the reason why some people get called on the mission field. And it isn't because, oh, it was a nice vacation spot, and now let's just turn our vacation spot into permanent ministry. It's often because they have a passion and compassion for people that they've never met, for a city they've never visited, for a land they've never seen. Because when God puts it in your heart, you begin to have this desire to help and to reach out and to serve and to love people, and you don't even really know them. Nehemiah didn't even really know these people. Yes, he was a part of the Jewish race. Yes, he had patriotism because of the land. Yes, he had compassion because these were his people. But it would have been very easy for him to live a content life as the cupbearer to the king in the citadel of Susa and not give any concern 
to what was happening back in Jerusalem. But this is a God thing in his heart. And note with me again the words of verse 3. The men who say what the condition of the Jews are to Nehemiah use these words. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Underline those words. Great trouble and disgrace. And it was more than the condition of the walls. It was the condition of the people. Nehemiah had a heart for people who were in great trouble and disgrace. And hear me on this, so should we. As a church, we should always have a heart for people who were greatly troubled and disgraced. And as we continue our points from the book of Ezra into Nehemiah, and when we were in Ezra, we had nine points, so I'm going to give you the tenth point if we're just continuing this whole idea of what do we need to learn going forward from their building projects and their relocation plans here. Here's number 10 on the list. We must always have a heart for people who are troubled and disgraced, having compassion for them and helping them because of their broken condition. Okay, that's what our church needs to continue to be about. We must always be a church of compassion that helps people, that not just feels for them, but actually does something to help people, to bring them to Christ, that they would understand forgiveness and grace and love in their trouble and disgrace. That troubled, disgraced people will come into our church and they will hear the good news of how God loves them and Christ died for them and that their lives can be forgiven and changed from the inside out. And we must still be people of great compassion and never lose sight as being people of great compassion for those who are troubled and disgraced, that we would have compassion over their broken condition. Now, I will be honest with you, a lot of people don't see their broken condition, not at first. I get the sense from this story, they don't recognize just how broken they are. It takes an outside objective perspective like Nehemiah to shine light onto their broken condition. These people aren't seeing it. You know, they're content to step over piles of rock and rubble to get to the temple from their homes on the outskirts of town. They're not weeping. They're used to it now. It's been about 100 years since the first wave has returned to Jerusalem. They are used to their broken condition, and they don't even see it. You know how that works in our own lives? We can get used to something because we just kind of get desensitized to everything else, and so we're just used to our broken condition, and we accept it as normal. Terry and I were at our friend's house many years ago. We were there for dinner one night. They had us over for dinner. And then after dinner was over, they said, hey, why don't we just go downstairs and just, you know, veg, hang out a little bit, watch some TV. So we're downstairs at their house watching some TV. And five minutes into whatever we were watching, I don't remember, I heard this loud snap, almost like a little firecracker inside their television. I'm like, this doesn't sound good. That TV's about to explode. And I kind of let it go. It was just one quick, you know, and then about five minutes later, I heard it again. And it caused me to jump. And I leaned over to Terry. I said, do you hear their TVs just snapping every five minutes? Just, she goes, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of disturbing. I hear it. It sounds like the thing's going to explode. I said, yeah, I know. What's up with that? And so we just kept watching. You know, we're whispering. Like, did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. And then after about five or six of these snaps, like a spark, I turned to my friends. They're just looking straight ahead at the TV. They're unfazed. They're looking straight ahead. I said, hey, sorry, do you guys hear what your TV's doing? They're like, what are you talking about? I said, about every five minutes, it snaps, it sparks. Just listen. Let's just pause here and listen. And so sure enough, a few minutes later, you know, there's the spark. My friend says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We don't even hear it anymore. Oh, 
That's all we have time for today on Cornerstone Connection. We're so glad you've taken the time out of your day to join us for a period of learning and encouragement for your life. If you were blessed by today's teaching, we'd encourage you to share it with someone you feel could use a little blessing as well. You can find and share this and many additional messages online at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take us with you on the go with our mobile app. Pastor Gary has also created companion resources that go along with some of the studies he's done. These are available on our website as well. Again, that address is cornerstoneconnection.cc. We at Cornerstone Connection believe that life is done better in community. Are you part of a local body of believers? For those of you in the Leesburg, Virginia area, we'd like to invite you to join us in person at Cornerstone Chapel. Come to our weekend services and find a warm group of people who would love to be your community. Weekend services are held Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. And we have a midweek gathering on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you'll come back next time as Pastor Gary continues through the book of Nehemiah on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know.